I just wonder, you know, what effect will this have? Will it be enough to kind of help the situation or, you know, is it, is it just going to get worse? Good morning. This is Deconstruct, a podcast from The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. It's Monday, January 15th. And today we've got maybe the most guests we've ever had on the show, I think. Right. So four of our reporters are joining us today. That's Sam Lounsbury, Catherine Kalurgis, Joe Lovinger, and Katie Brenzel are with us today to chat about the state of YIMBY politics across New York, California, South Florida, Texas, and Chicago. And for those unfamiliar, YIMBY stands for YES in my backyard. It's an acronym that refers to the support for more housing development. And it advocates for more apartments and densification, and especially in areas that have become unaffordable. Right. And often that aligns with developers want. Yeah, definitely. So we'll get into what sort of YIMBY legislation is cropping up across our markets and how we've seen some of the fights over these laws playing out recently. There's been a lot of tension, actually. Pretty juicy. Yeah, definitely. I think this will be a really interesting year. It seems like more um, city councils are definitely getting into the fight. I definitely learned a lot from this conversation, so we hope you do too. And not that I'm assigning homework, but the topic is also the cover of our January magazine issue. Yeah, good supplemental reading there. But first, here is the news of last week. So there's some political news out of New York City. There might finally be a replacement for 421A. That's the property tax break that expired last year that we touched on in our chat with Alicia Glenn a few weeks ago. So Governor Kathy Hochul called for the state to replace the tax break and extend out the deadline to complete projects and qualify for the break. Here's a clip of her speech. So where does that leave us? We still need an effective statewide approach to encourage new construction. But in the meantime... There are aggressive actions we can and must take now. Now, I remember last year, member, many of the loudest voices in opposition said they believed in local control. Okay, let's put that to the test. The city of New York, which is a local government, wants to build 500,000 more homes over a decade. I agree. Let them build our plan for New York City. Our plan for New York City. So it doesn't sound like we have any real details yet. What do we know so far? Right. So the takeaway from that is that Hochul wants the state legislature to allow the city to offer a tax break for rental construction. And the program seems like it would look similar to 421A. There would be affordability requirements, which were there under the old program, and there would also be labor wage standards, similar to the old 421A. But really no specifics were detailed in her speech. Got it. So moving to South Florida, Kushner Companies scored approval last week to build a luxury apartment complex in Surfside, which will include a synagogue, which is interesting. And it'll be the first Kushner project in Surfside. Yeah, Kushner was in the news a couple times last week, actually. So it also sold a multifamily portfolio in the East Village in New York for about $58 million. Interesting. Did the deal sell at a profit? Yes, but just barely by a hair. So Kushner bought the portfolio for f- around 52 million in 2013, so not much appreciation there. 
Well, we can talk about some actual distress. I can start with the CMBS maturities in LA. So there's about $21 billion in CMBS and CLO loans tied to LA and Orange County properties that's coming due this year. And about 60% of that debt is already watchlisted or is in special servicing. Debt is often watchlisted when it's set to mature soon and borrowers haven't given a good indication as to what it plans to do. For example, pay off the loan, refinance, or just walk away from the property altogether. Yeah. Do you know, has any of it been paid off? Yeah. So almost $3 billion. So, you know, a few, but it's only, you know, a couple weeks into January. It is worth noting that more came due in 2023 than 2024, but it's still way above what we're seeing in 2018 and 2019. Right. That's the uh, much talked about wall of maturities. Exactly. And last thing, NAR's president, Tracy Casper, has stepped down. She was only in the role for, what was it? like? It was like a few months, right? Not much. Yeah, five to be exact. It's actually the third shakeup in the last year or so. And it was strange, um, a little, you know, mysterious here. Casper, quote, informed NAR's leadership team that she recently received a threat to disclose a past personal non-financial matter unless she compromised her position. So essentially a blackmail threat. That was a quote from the group last week. Definitely volatile, especially given the litigation we've talked about. Mm -hmm. So let's get into our political roundtable for today. Okay, so we have a big group of guests on today. Heading into 2024, the biggest issue across, you know, all of our markets seems to be housing production. It's a cut and dry problem. We don't have enough apartments, enough homes for people to live in. Rents are high as a result. Homelessness is a growing crisis. And as more cities grapple with these problems, there seems to be a shift away from NIMBYism, what we call not in my backyard, the anti-development acronym that has arisen. This shift away from NIMBYism to YIMBYism, the Y stands for yes. Katie, you've written a lot about this phenomenon in New York. The catalyst for that changing sentiment was the worsening housing crisis. But you have also reported that New York was really following in the footsteps of California. Can you talk about how the West Coast really led the charge on Yimbyism? Yeah. So, I mean, I think over the last decade or so, you really saw these Yimby groups gain momentum. And I think, you know, in the sort of early stages of these groups, you would see, um, people who identified as, as YIMBYs show up at council meetings and sort of serve as a voice of pro-development. You know, I think like a truism of city council meetings, local meetings, is that um, the people who tend to show up to those meetings are people who oppose projects. Um, and as a result, they end up being sort of the loudest voices at those meetings and end up getting quoted in newspapers, publications. Um, and sort of that paints the narrative of, you know, how people feel about those projects. So, you know, something I've heard over and over again from these groups is that they've sort of tried to be the voice of um, future residents of these projects. And, you know, I think over time, elected officials have obviously been listening to them. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of pro-housing legislation pass in California. Um, you've seen, you know, increase in accessory dwelling units. You've also seen these YIMBY groups, um, you know, formalize and file lawsuits against communities that they feel are, you know, actively blocking new housing. And in, Cal in um, New York, you, you've heard a lot about California in the past year because Governor Kathy Hochul in New York had proposed a housing plan that included something very similar to California's Builder's Remedy. 
which allows developers to bypass local zoning um, in event that they these communities don't, you know, abide by the housing growth targets. It didn't move forward last year, um, and it almost certainly is not moving forward this year. But I think, you know, so what I've been hearing from folks is that they feel like at least that sort of served as a catalyst for the conversation, moving this kind of, taking this kind of, poli- these sort of policies seriously in a way that they hadn't been um, prior to this. So it seems like there's still some momentum in New York, but it's it's still very uncertain of where things are headed. On the topic of California, I really wanted to start with this concept of builder's remedy and how it fits into the, some of the EMB pushes that we've seen across the state. I'll try not to get too weedy here, but builder's remedy is basically a penalty. So under California law, and we did an episode about this probably a year and a bit ago, but cities have to devise what's called a state housing element. They're basically plans that detail how the city will add more housing over the next eight years. The state then has to approve and certify that plan. But if cities fail to get their housing plan certified by a state-mandated deadline, they then lose the right to reject a project based on local zoning rules. That's so long as the project meets certain affordability requirements. And obviously, Builders Remedy is loved by YIMBY groups, right? It's a way to fast track housing developments, specifically projects with affordable portions. And I think what's interesting here is that we've seen a lot of these projects filed in many expensive high-end cities. Think Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, La Cunada Flint Ridge is another one. And historically, it's been really tough to build in these cities. So this is a way where cities can't say, no, we don't want that apartment tower in our city because it will, you know, disrupt the views or disrupt the kind of the aura of the city or, you know, we don't like it because it's next to a historical building, something like that. They don't have that anymore. At the end of last year, Builders Remedy backers got a huge win from the state. Governor Gavin Newsom and the state's attorney general asked to join a court case. And basically, they legitimized Builders Remedy and said, you know, this is a real penalty if cities don't get their stuff together. Joe, I wanted to move to Austin. Um, Austin has a new-ish mayor, Kirk Watson. He's not entirely new, but new to this generation. Can you talk about his background, his historical relationship with real estate, and how that has changed ahead of his recent run? Yeah. In the most recent mayoral election, Austin did something kind of strange, which is they elected a mayor who they hadn't elected since the 1990s. Uh, But they went back to Kirk Watson. Um, He spent several years in the state house, in which a lot of things changed. But in many important ways, you know, the situation is kind of the same. Um, when he was first mayor of Austin, which was in the 90s, he was dealing with conflict between the local environmentalist groups and local developers. If you've ever been to Austin, you've probably visited Barton Springs. It's this really fun, natural water spring and people can swim in it, take their dogs. And, and it's just it's a great only in Austin kind of uh, attraction. Um, and so at that same time, the city was booming. Watson was trying to woo tech companies and housing costs were on the rise. But at the same time, people were worried that overdevelopment might threaten the aquifer that that feeds the spring. Um, So Watson actually brokered a compromise, which no one really thought was possible. He put together this huge bond package that expanded the downtown convention center, helped grow downtown. And it also was used to buy thousands of acres of land near the aquifer um, and preserve that land, um, keep it development free. So he's bridged this divide before between NIMBYs and YIMBYs, um, even though they weren't called that at the time. But since then, a lot has happened in Austin. There was this big initiative called Code Next that was multi-million dollars, and 
they were aiming to rewrite the whole zoning code to make it much more um, transit oriented and and allow for much more dense development. After many years and many lawsuits, it was a total failure. So the latest attempt has kind of been to take a more piecemeal approach. Um, that's what Watson ran on. He wanted a slower, more incremental approach than his opponent in the mayoral race. And since he was elected, the council's passed several development code changes that Yimbies are no doubt happy about. They will allow duplexes on all residential lots. They'll eliminate parking minimums, decrease minimum lot sizes, reduce compatibility standards. Um, so there have been a lot of wins for Yimbies, and, and Watson commissioned this big McKinsey study that he you know, read the results out in front of local realtor groups and was like, I'm not known to be uh, understated, but this is a huge mess. Uh, he you know, was really surprised with how, how much of a mess the development system is here. So while Yimbies have been racking up all of these wins, um, at the same time, the courts have struck down some really um, pro-development, transit-oriented development codes. So it's kind of a you know, couple steps forward, couple steps back situation right now. Uh, and Watson finds himself again trying to thread the needle between developers and preservationists, and he's taking the moderate approach. So, got it. So a few, definitely a few hurdles there. I'm upset now that I didn't go to this spring <laughs> when I was in Austin. This development. Um, so okay, let's hop to. We're staying kind of in the in the south here, but we'll move on to South Florida. There's been a push for new development that's coming from the top of the governmental chain. So Governor Ron DeSantis signed the so-called Live Local Act in March. That is a YMB bill. Catherine, can you tell us what that does? Yeah, so it um, basically creates incentives for developers to incorporate. They're saying affordable housing. Really, it's um, workforce housing when you look at the requirements into their projects. And so um, it creates like height and Density incentives, basically, if you have 40% of your units are set aside for people making up to, I think, 120% of the AMI, area median income. But by doing that, you're kind of like superseding local zoning laws, um, which has created this like conflict in a lot of cities because we have, I mean, just in South Florida, we have dozens of municipalities. They all have their own um, zoning rules. So they don't have to kind of seek approval for like tall towers. Um in, you know, depending on the city's rules. And that has kind of created this conflict between a lot of developers and municipalities because they can't, you know, they can fight it, but they'll probably be challenged in court. Um, the municipalities will. And so, like, for example, in Doral, the city actually passed a moratorium in September, a six-month moratorium on all live local projects while they try to figure out how this legislation fits with them. And then in the meantime, they've reached a compromise with the developer who had proposed to build a taller project who's now kind of come down in height. So there's a lot of that playing out. Um, and then you also have this the state potentially tweaking the bill so that it would um, double down on the um, preemption. So the state's like overruling of local government's zoning by incorporating floor area ratios. So basically, if you file plans for a project and they conflict with the city's floor area ratio regulations, it won't matter because you can match the FAR within the highest that is currently allowed in the county. So they're kind of like tightening the grip statewide, um, if that makes sense, but also kind of making some, some changes where like the height would be of a proposed project instead of being as tall as a building within one mile, which is what the law now allows, it would be as tall as a building within a quarter of a mile. So you have like both things happening. The idea is to like add density 
to projects that are already being built. But I think that like a lot of developers will say like, once you reach a certain height, it just gets more expensive. So it's, we'll see how like it really plays out, how many units are actually built, but primarily it creates funding and it lets developers go taller than what they could typically do in the average city. Katie, what's going on in Florida seems like a natural comparison to what's happening in New York. In Florida, live local stripped municipalities of their ability to pass certain measures relating to real estate, and it gave hundreds of millions of dollars to developers. In New York, we discussed this on the podcast with Alicia Glenn a couple of weeks ago, and we mentioned you know, earlier in our news roundup that there's some discussions around 421A. Um, you know, there's maybe a replacement on the table, but also th- it may be traded for good cause eviction, which is considered universal rent control by some developers and landlords. We don't really need to rehash that debate for our listeners, but I do want to ask you about New York City's new subsidy program. What does that look like and how effective does it seem to be? Will landlords really take advantage of this? Can they? Yeah. So, you know, I think city and state officials both are kind of trying to figure out what they can do without the legislature on the 421 and issue. So like this new subsidy program is the latest sort of from the city. It's called the Mixed Income Market Initiative Program um, with the acronym MIMI for some reason. Um, and basically it's, you know, it's by no means a replacement for 421A. It's really just sort of a new um a new subsidy that's that's being overseen by the Department of Housing Preservation and Development. Um, the funding is available for projects that are 70% affordable and 30% market rate, um, which is sort of actually the reverse of, of what for the affordability requirements under 421A. Um, and it also requires that at least 15% of the units are set aside for formerly homeless individuals. So we, we don't really have much details on how much money is going to be available for this program, but I think it's pretty safe to say that we're not going to see developers who were planning or banking on 421A now go and try to get this program because it is very much, um, you know, when you have that 15% um, requirement, you are most likely looking at, um, you know, affordable housing developers, nonprofits that have, um, you know, expertise in supportive housing. A lot of developers of mixed income, mixed income housing are not necessarily equipped um, to do that kind of development. So, I mean, this subsidy is really just a way for the city to show that they are taking some kind of action. But at the end of the day, it's not really a replacement for 421A. Um, and most of the developers I talked to, while they were happy that the city is at least thinking about this, they were also pretty realistic about the fact that they're not really planning to use it. Okay, so Sam, jumping to you in Chicago, I really want to dig into transfer taxes, which have weighed heavily on a number of our cities this past year. A transfer tax being the sales tax on high-priced properties you know, obviously higher is worse in real estate. Sam, you know, Chicago is a good place to start with this. You all got a new mayor last year. His name is Brandon Johnson, and he's notably not a real estate favorite. And just a few months into his term, he really solidified that reputation by proposing to raise the city's transfer tax. Explain to us what Johnson's measure would do and why real estate is not a fan. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and it's it's actually structured in a really fascinating way, it's not going to um, raise the transfer tax for every deal. Um, it would actually just uh, 
raise it for sales that are more than a million dollars. And that includes both residential and commercial transactions. And it would actually, if it goes through as currently proposed, it would cut the sales tax on uh, properties um, sold for less than $1 million. So the vast majority of residential real estate transactions in Chicago would see um, a little bit of savings uh, on the tax bill when they go to sell. The reason, you know, both residential and commercial real estate trade groups are uh, vehemently opposed to this um, measure because um, the biggest deals in the city would see the tax rate they pay to the uh, city quadruple from the current rate of 0.75%. It would go all the way up to 3% of the sale price. Um, you know, this is coming at a time when, you know, Chicago's downtown office market is kind of at a historically vulnerable point with return to office, you know, not really picking up much steam here over the last year since the pandemic kind of waned. Um, you know, we know that with interest rates, uh, you know, rising over the past year to combat inflation, that's really put a lot of commercial landlords in, in a very tough spot with their loans. And, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of foreclosures, a lot of vacancy uh, in downtown buildings. And now they feel that um, uh, the industry feels that if this transfer tax were to go through, it's, it's only going to harm the values of their properties even more, you know, uh, as they're already, you know, kind of... Um, in this historically uh, threatened environment. Yeah, we also saw LA pass transfer taxes, so-called Measure ULA, last April. And Sam, we heard a lot of the same arguments you just mentioned. It's definitely also affecting commercial more than just residential. I know that, you know, obviously it's a higher threshold in LA than Chicago, but because commercial properties are more expensive, it's just tended to affect the commercial sector much more. In a lot of ways, I think that LA has become the test case here, you know, it's the question of whether this is a way for cities to fund more affordable housing and build more housing in general. But we've started to see the effects and it doesn't look like it's working in the way that they really wanted it to. First, the city has reeled in a fraction of the hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that it initially projected. And that's mostly because the transfer tax has scared off a lot of investment sales. They were you know, their initial projections were based on 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021 investment sales. And those were really good years besides 2020. But 2021 interest rates were historically low. And, you know, ev people were buying anything and everything. Obviously, there were more sales in general. But with interest rates slowing and the extra transfer tax, sales have mostly just frozen up. So, of course, they're not reeling in the same amount of revenue that they had initially wanted. But second, construction has really slowed. It's not entirely because of Measure ULA. I think a significant portion of it is, but there's a confluence of factors, the other largest being the rise in interest rates. But I think many developers see LA as too difficult to build in or just a more mature market generally. Measure ULA clearly became a good linchpin to say, okay, that's it, we're moving our business away. I'll give an example. I spoke to a developer a couple of weeks ago, David Nagel at Decron Properties, and he said that when Measure ULA was passed, it was really the trigger that disincentivized him and his firm to sell in the city. So they've been cashing out, moving to San Diego and Phoenix. But I'll give this example. Suppose a developer proposes a 300 unit market rate project in the city of L.A., right? Say construction is estimated to cost $100 million. Once it's finished, the developer sells the project for $150 million. 
the new transfer taxes don't apply to profit, but the sale price as a whole. So take that $150 million, the city would slap on a 5.5% tax, which comes out to $8.25 million. That wipes out 16.5% of the profit on the development. So if a developer is looking to maximize their profits, they can go to another city where they can do that. As I said earlier, there are a confluence of factors here, and that example assumes that the property would even sell for that much right now. But it definitely impedes YIMBY ambition here, right? Less profit is less incentive for construction and therefore less housing. So, Sam, I think it'll be interesting to see whether Chicago sees that same sort of chilling effect. Yeah, exactly. It, it gives, you know, owners who already have real estate under control another reason not to sell. You know, it doesn't matter. You'd pay the same amount of tax if you were, you know, making money as if you were losing money uh, to the city um, under the current measure. There is very organized opposition to it by the uh, real estate um, industry right now. Um, actually, just in the last few days on uh, Friday, January 5th, they uh, a few trade groups, um, including the Building Owners and Managers Association, um, filed a lawsuit challenging the legality of the ballot measure language as it's proposed. They think that the mayor um, and the city council isn't allowed to ask voters to both decrease a transfer tax for uh, you know one portion of the market and increase uh, the transfer tax for the high end um, portion of the market at, at the same time with the same ballot question. Um, so we'll see what the judge rules on that. We have um, the election coming up where voters will actually decide whether to institute this transfer tax on March 19th. Now, how it could impact the housing market um, is very interesting because, um, you know, as uh, we noted it, it's mostly going to be a tax on commercial real estate, um, considering you know most residential transactions uh, are for under a million dollars um, in Chicago. Uh, so the advocates of this measure—it's called "Bring Chicago Home." They want to use all the additional money it raises to um, pump into you know uh, homelessness services, uh, hopefully build housing or fund more programs for people experiencing homelessness and. You know, a lot of the opposition is saying, you know, this this actually could do just the opposite. It, it could limit um, new housing coming online. You know, developers aren't going to want to pay higher taxes um, when they uh, finish building their their properties. Um, you know, so they'll go build somewhere else, they say, um, you know, and they feel, you know, the opposition feels that, you know, this is only going to cause landlords um, to want to raise the rents because they need to recover um, more money that that they would have been able to get out of their out of their sale, you know, that won't be there anymore because it's going to the tax man. Okay, let's wrap up here. Having heard from five sides of the country at this point, it seems like the discussion on development is at or has reached this national sort of tipping point where people are really focused on, you know, either propelling NIMBY or YIMBY ambitions. Joe, we touched on this a little bit in Texas, but I'm curious to hear from the other regions. Do you see a true sea change from NIMBY to YIMBY or do you see, you know, these power struggles just playing out over the next year? Yeah, I mean, I think in New York, we're just starting to see these conversations take shape. And I think definitely over the next year, um, you know, as we had mentioned, it's def there's definitely going to be these, this struggle between, um, you know, figuring out how to incentivize development while also finding 
tenant protection policies that both sides can sort of live with. So, you know, I think those two items are really going to kind of set the stage for some of the other pro-housing policies on the table. I can kind of speak a little bit about Florida. I I think that um, it's not, I don't know, I don't really see it so much as like YIMBY versus NIMBY because at least with the state is really very um, YIMBY. I mean, there's a lot pro-development that just kind of wins a lot of the time. Um, But I think what will be interesting to see is if like this legislation you know, has has it like an effect on creating housing that people can afford? Because if it doesn't, then, you know, wh- what direction are we headed in? I mean, it is one of the most unaffordable markets in the country and it's getting worse. And a lot of people, developers are kind of starting to like recognize that like they'll say, you know, we don't want to become New York or we don't want to become L.A. So it's kind of I, I just wonder, you know, what effect will this have? Will it be enough to kind of help the situation or are we kind of just kind of, you know, is it, is it just going to get worse? Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts, or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to Ron Dickerman. He's the president and founder of Madison International Realty, and we chatted about the state of the office market and what asset classes he's most excited about. Tune in then.